there we were up in the air returning from Ireland um, after a, a group of trip with other individuals with disabilities and Emily really couldn't sleep, couldn't seem to focus on anything and basically was sitting in her seat staring at the tray in front of her or the screen in front of her. And, um, you know, at, at, at the eighth hour of a 10 hour flight, she had had it. And uh, she broke out in a full on a meltdown. This is Valerie Gilpier talking about her daughter, Emily Grodin, who has autism. For the first 25 years of her life, Emily's ability to communicate was limited to yes, no, and a variety of noises and screams. When she was unable to get her needs across, her frustration could boil over into enormous, occasionally even violent outbursts. But what happened on that long flight back to the States was next level. There was uh, a lot of, of screaming and, and grabbing and, and uh, she was very upset. Um, it was among the more epic of the, t- of the meltdowns we had experienced. And given the uh, circumstances where we had no way out, yeah. uh, where we couldn't just uh, escort her off the plane, that was our biggest fear, actually. I mean, I say this jokingly, but honestly, I thought they might open an eject hatch and throw <laughs> us out. Uh, I, mean, just, I mean, it was bad. You know, you're in a confined space, and it's not happy. And there were ch- children there that were frightened. This went on for two hours. We could not distract her or redirect her in any way, and the people we were traveling with tried to do the same, and uh, things just weren't happening um, to calm her down. The family had tried every therapy they could find over the years to help Emily communicate more effectively. Nothing had worked, but that epically awful plane ride triggered a miracle. I have to have a change. Emily found her voice. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about I think that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, we are listening to people with autism. So often we talk about or for them. Emily's story is as clear an example as you'll find of what can happen when autistic individuals speak for themselves. What they want and need often turns out to be different from what society, the scientific community, and even their own parents are pushing for. For years, Emily had worked with a therapist to try and communicate by typing her thoughts on an iPad and couldn't seem to break through. But the morning after that disastrous plane flight, she came down from her room and started typing. I am typing on my, I am typing on my iPad today. My communication partner is here to support. I have been buried under years of dust, Emily typed to her parents that first morning, one word at a time. It was slow going, but Emily knew exactly what she wanted to say. Her thoughts came flowing out, fully formed, often as poems. Like this one, titled Wrong, which captures what those first 25 years of her life were like. They said I had no way to understand the world and that I would never know a whole life that I was to this and I was to that and that I couldn't grow to be who I am. They were wrong. They told me to calm down. They said to relax. But they failed to provide me with the map that would lead me in the proper direction. They were wrong. So I wrote the map myself, and despite their lack of help, I found the way to go without asking anybody else. Because when they were wrong, little did they know that I would be determined to help myself grow. I would figure out the way, find my own straight path, and once my own was written, I'd help others write their map. They'll see they were wrong to think so small of me, to assume that I'd be any less than the person that is me. I think maybe if I'm honest, I should have thanked them all along. I am everything I am today because they were wrong. Emily, can you describe for us what it felt like to not be able to express yourself? I... Always. I 
always was taking in everything around me, so language was always there in my head. Were you writing poems in your head? I had shorter loops. I had shorter loops of language. Yeah. Looping, that's, a, that's an interesting word. I can imagine that. And especially since you can't write it down <laughs> to remember what you've composed, it has to sort of run in your mind. You were clearly, it was very busy in there in your mind, Emily. But you, you describe once as a child having a tutor at school say to another adult in the room right in front of you that working with you was like training a dog to write a novel. She talked about you right in front of you, and you heard that. You understood that. Now here you have wrote, written a book, <laughs> and you're a published poet. Um, what would you say to that tutor today if you could see her again? I would read. I would read then the poem I just played for you. Mm. And I would have a few things to throw in there too, which are not <laughs> which are not appropriate. Valerie Gilpier and Emily Groden have written a memoir together about all of this. It's called I Have Been Buried Under Years of Dust. You know, the inability to speak is a huge handicap. You know, verbal communication is how we judge people. And, uh, you know, we measure their intelligence. How well do you, how well do you put those, those words together? And because Emily did not have the ability to verbally communicate, uh, people did misunderstand her and misunderstood a lot of her behaviors. Um, and it kept her really from growth and from people appreciating the intelligence in her that her father and I always recognized. How did you maintain your confidence that that Emily was capable of more and that you could find and how and, and that you would someday be able to convince somebody to believe that and give her the opportunity? It, you know, it was so easy to believe in Emily. I mean, you had to know this child when she was born. I mean, she was the most lively human being you can imagine. And the light that was in her and that stayed in her, despite everything that happened, was extraordinary. I mean, we, we put her through the paces. We put her through every single therapy there was possible. And she was always cooperative. And I knew there was something in there and it kept me going. Did I have confidence that we would find ultimately what we found? No, I didn't. But I knew I would keep going and keep at it and not give up until I was no longer breathing. Emily, uh, you talk in the book about occasionally having outbursts um, that would sometimes become quite disruptive. Were, were those caused by your frustration with not being able to express yourself? Absolutely. It. Absolutely. It literally was the way I had to express. There was not another way in those meltdowns. They just don't happen anymore like they used to. You didn't enjoy the experience of those meltdowns either. You make that quite clear. Um, it wasn't a choice you were making. <laughs> um, but you write about how it, how it felt like you call it the autistic child taking over. Um, you write about sometimes the physical movements or the vocalizations that you might make. You say, oh, that's the autistic child thinking or that's the autistic child reacting. So can, do you feel like autism is some sort of a, is it part of you or is it an, like an alien force inside of you that you have to try to control? Both. I am autistic, but I battle with my autistic brain, I call it, because I have to control those things to be in the position I want to be in. What is that position you want to be in? A. Functioning. A functioning member of the world. Valerie, what fears did you have for Emily, thinking about a future where she she would be unable to communicate before she had her breakthrough 
I mean, she was 25. She, she'd been well, a teenager, an adult. What, what did you worry about? Well, I think it's pretty well documented that my biggest concern was that there would be a public misunderstanding um, of her behaviors that would result in a, you know, a horrific outcome. I mean, unfortunately, what we've, we've seen is a, a misunderstanding in response by the community and often police uh, to the, um, you know, the behaviors, the public behaviors demonstrated by people with autism who are frustrated and, una- and unable to communicate clearly what's going on with them. And that was my biggest fear. Emily, what do you think clicked for you? For months, you had been only typing short answers. You weren't really fluid with, fluent with this um, communication method. But then all of a sudden, a a switch flipped that day after the flight. What happened, do you think? I had to. I had to let them know I was there. But there, and that trip, I wanted them to know all that I thought and felt. I had to let them know I was there, buried, but there. Yeah, it's like you were buried alive, unable to to communicate. And, and so, Emily, what did it feel like to see the recognition in your parents' eyes as they read your words and you knew they were understanding how you felt? I think there was a period. I think there was a period of surprise for them. Shock. It was a lot of pieces clicking into place for me. Hmm. And Valerie, what was the experience like for you? What were the thoughts and feelings? When Emily first typed, yeah, well, that was uh, initial shock, <laughs> uh, gratitude, affirmation of what we always knew was in her, um, followed by disbelief, <laughs> skepticism. Um, you know, it was truly an, an absolutely amazing experience to see those, wor- those words on spool, you know, on the screen. Um, when we first saw them. I mean, uh, it was an incredible thing. And, you know, as the time went on and we realized that this was for real, um, it was utter relief. You know, utter relief that she was, you know, basically released from her captivity, if you will. Um, and she could let us, let everybody know about her, let people know how she felt, let us know how she felt, what she wanted from her world. I mean, everything changed. Truly, this was her ticket. This was her ticket to the world. Is there anything about her her voice, and by that I mean her her written voice? Is there anything about it that has has surprised you, Valerie? Well, I you know I had no idea that Emily had such an extensive vocabulary, <laughs> or that she had such a, a capacity for um, correct grammar. Mm-hmm. Uh, spelling, all of it. You know, she had never written an es- a sentence, let alone an essay or a poem. So these were all huge surprises. And <clears throat> as a matter of note, of a note is that every single thing that Emily wrote that is reflected in the book, both poetry and commentary, is all first draft and unedited mm-hmm. in any way whatsoever by anyone. So her incredible... Um, fluidity and her ability to write in the fashion that she does, the poetic and lyrical way that she does, it all was quite shocking to us. What was the experience then of writing this memoir together? You were writing your parts, she was writing her parts. She's been, were there, were there times where she would write something and you would learn something from it? Like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, putting the puzzle pieces together of the first 25 years of her life when she couldn't speak. It's like really having a, a child, seeing our child for the first time. And my husband has said that. He said, it's like we have, a, we have a different child. We have a different person that we're living with now mm-hmm. uh, because we have so much more information about her. We didn't have it before. You know, we were just trying to make the right decisions for her. But now she's making the decisions. She decides what she wants, not us. 
her life is, is truly a new life, both for her and for us. Emily, why did you want to write this memoir? I hoped it would speak to. I hoped it would speak to families on similar paths and change minds about autism or the non-speaking experience. What is the main misconception you're hoping to dispel or overcome about autism, Emily? That just because that just because someone can't speak it does not represent their mind necessarily. That's Emily Grodin. The memoir she wrote with her mother, Valerie Gilpier, is called I Have Been Buried Under Years of Dust. Until quite recently in America, the most prominent voices in autism advocacy were parents of autistic children. But now those children are adults and speaking for themselves. And they've got a lot to say. I think we focus too much on trying to cure autistic people and not enough on trying to help them live fulfilling lives. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Eric Garcia grew up knowing that his autism made him different and that some things were harder for him because of it. But it's not something he would change because autism is part of who he is. He even believes it gives him an edge as a political reporter. I think so, yeah. Um, I'm going to be dogged and then I'm not going to take someone being dishonest. You know, even I was interviewing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and like, her press person came out saying, we'll set up an interview later, but I just needed one more question. So at that point, I was just like, I could either pay attention to what she's saying or I could get my question in. So I just asked that question. Mm-hmm. And I got the quote from uh, from Congressman Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. And that was just an example of like, sometimes you do have to push and sometimes you do have to be aggressive. And I think that if I cared about social niceties more than some other people, then I don't think I would be as great a reporter. And then there's also just the ability... A lot of people pathologize autistic people's special interests. They call them special interests. I like to call them focus interests, but I don't think I would be as good at covering politics if I weren't as as obsessive about, you know, previous election results in Arizona or Georgia mm. or looking at the, the data of young white voters versus young black voters in the last Georgia runoff. But at the same, in the same respect, I don't want to take that way that autism is a disability. So I do get overwhelmed before I make a phone call to call a source. And I do have to give myself 30 seconds to breathe before doing that. Hello. And then afterward, if I'm exhausted, even if I'm interviewing, and even if an interview was a breeze, I do have to take like a minute or two to decompress after that. And then also I have to have it in a quiet environment because any external noise can be overwhelming. Eric Garcia is author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. He's part of what's called the ADA generation. These are kids who entered grade school in the 90s when the Americans with Disabilities Act became law, along with the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, which focused on students with disabilities in schools. IDEA mandated that students with disabilities be provided a free, appropriate public education and that specifically it meant that schools now had to report the number of autistic students they served. So what happened was you saw a spike in autistic people getting diagnosed, both because the diagnostic criteria changed and because um, public policy was changing. Garcia and his peers came of age better equipped than any of their predecessors to advocate for themselves. Whereas before, parents and clinicians were the most prominent voices. I think parents still have a big say today. The difference is now that that generation of autistic people that I mentioned are now growing up and they now can write their own narratives. So what what is it that uh, self-advocates like yourself want Instead, what, what, I mean, do, 
you, if, if you had the choice and someone could wave a magic wand today and, and autism Asperger's would be gone from your life, would, would you not choose that? That's a really good question. And I would say when I was a teenager, yes, I did. And that was because uh, I felt like I was an outsider. I felt like I was awkward and things like that. And I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. But in hindsight, I realized that that was a them problem. That was people around me problem. It wasn't a me problem. And in hindsight, I realized that I wouldn't want to be cured. So how do you think about it then? If we don't see it as a disease that we should try to get rid of, um, but, but it does also... Yes. Create disability or disabling yes. conditions, right? I, I see it then as a disability, just like I would see, um, just like I would see deafness or blindness mm-hmm. or cerebral palsy. Uh, which, or polio. which, I mean, some people, you know, would like to see cerebral palsy uh, cured, right? But, but, but right. there is a group, there is a growing. You're right, a growing voice of self advocates who say, you know, blindness, deafness, don't, you know, that's part of who I am. You don't, don't take that away from me. Right. Uh, And like, while there are many people who would want cerebral palsy, uh, you know, cured at the same time, there are still a lot of people with cerebral palsy right now. And what are we doing to help them? Um, Or or what did we do? You know, there were many people who we created the polio vaccine, but at the same time, it was the people with polio, like Justin Dart and Judith Human, who, uh, who were really instrumental in, creating the Americans with Disabilities Act to make the world adaptable now. So while we eradicated polio, we also worked to make the world adaptable for people in wheelchairs. And the same way, uh, I want the world to be open and accepting and, um, you know, welcoming and embracing of autistic people. And I want them to accept and see, a lot of times people see, you know, my friend Rebecca Coakley says, you know, like, a lot of people say, "See the person, not the disability." No, we need you to see the disability, and we need to see that what are the what are what what is it that you need, and how can we make the world adaptable and make and to borrow from Robert Kennedy, make gentle the life of this world. What's another? Do you think misconception or stereotype about autism? I think one would be that it only affects white males, mm. uh, particularly my white heterosexual adolescent teenager males. If you see shows like Atypical or shows like The Good Doctor or even movies like The, uh, the Accountant, the Ben Affleck movie, it's who, who are, uh, and of course, Rain Man, who is typically autistic in those movies? It was white men. Um, and the portrayals of autism of people of color or by women are pretty few, few and far between. And then also we exclude a lot of people of color. And a large reason for that is that people of color often get misdiagnosed as either having behavioral disorders or like oppositional defiance dis- uh, disorder, mm-hmm. or they just get undiagnosed for a long time or they get misdiagnosed or diagnosed later. Um, and, and so how did also, that affect, and, and did that have any effect, or maybe describe for us how that, how, how that affected your uh, ability to get diagnosed? I'm, depending on how you read it, third or, third or fourth generation Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I'm pretty assimilated, and I grew up in the suburbs. Because English was our first language, and you know, oftentimes I've been embarrassed that I don't speak Spanish fluently. Oddly enough, it was because we spoke English fluently and because we were pretty assimilated that there wasn't that language gap that could have probably prevented me from getting diagnosed because that the language gap is a big is a big reason why a lot of Latinos uh, and I'm sure people who speak other languages don't get diagnosed because the diagnostic criteria is still largely done in English. Eric, you have this line that really stood out to me in the foreword, uh, the preface of the book, uh, where people with autism are forced to navigate a world where all the road signs are in a different language. Yes. Can, can you give yes, me an yes. example of that? You know, when it comes to work and employment, a lot of things like job interviews are not necessarily conducive to uh, autistic people because they require social cues or social skill or, 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 or you know, conventional social skills or, or, or reading body language. Uh, another one is, you know, let's talk about uh, let's talk about emergency rooms and emergency departments. Can you imagine a place that's worse for autistic people with flashing lights and bright fluorescent lights and people poking you with a bunch of different needles and asking you a bunch of questions? It's hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of the sensory overload. Because of the sensory and, overload, yeah. And, and the people who are operating on certain social expectations that right, is just exactly. like completely that, foreign to you. Right. Like that you're you're actually operating in a culture that you don't understand in a language that you don't always, you can't speak or understand. Right. I, I, I often say, and you know, a friend of mine said this, is that like, 
autistic people, even if we do, you know, can quote unquote pass to pass for, like we, to pass for not autist, autistic yeah, in, in society. Uh, yeah. We'll still, a friend of mine said it this, this way, we'll still speak in a, we'll still speak neurotypical in an autistic accent, so to speak. <laughs> right. <You> know, <laughs> my grandmother, God bless her, I miss her every day, uh, because she was the first person born in the U.S., she spoke with a, with a Mexican accent, with a Spanish accent. Um, and she included Spanish in her English. Uh, and in the same way, occasionally the autism, even when I'm being acting neurotypical, the autism will seep in. Let's talk for a moment about some of the accommodations. I don't even know. I mean, do you like that word? Uh, accommodations? Uh, that Because I, that's I, how we think about like how to make the world more supportive and more friendly to people with autism. Right. I do like the, I, I do like accommodations. I do think that they could work. But more than anything, I think the problem that I have with accommodations is the problem is, is that they still put the onus on the student. And I write about this in the book. Mm. Is that they put the onus on the student to A, go to their disability service, to the, to the disability services office at their university or high school or whatever. Uh, then it requires them to go to their professor and disclose, which is often really, and then, and you're really playing Russian roulette there because you might have a really accepting professor, or you might have a professor who says that, well, you're not really disabled because they might think if you're a university, you don't, you, you know, how could you be disabled, right? Right, or they might be you like, know? well, this is an honors class, you can't, you know, you don't belong here. Then, if you have to yeah. ask me for accommodations, right, exactly. Like, and that, that was that was literally what uh, this young man named Charlie Garcia Spiegel told me is that like one of his professors thought that like because he was having such trouble they're like well maybe you don't belong here you know mm. so what would be a better approach then you know universities aren't perfect by any means but they've gotten better at being more welcoming toward people of color and women and uh, people with v- visible disabilities like people in wheelchairs though completely not perfect there are plenty of inaccessible university buildings um, but in the same respect we need to be more uh, mindful about how do we make universal design for uh, for disabled people and for and for autistic people and people with invisible disabilities like ADHD and autism mm. and dyslexia what One do we of, do for them in terms of the design you know distractions and sounds and things like that and spaces where we have have classes or where we you know doctors meet with their patients but what what about the the extra time that's one of the accommodations that was important yeah, to you so ultimately I, so I, so yeah so, like, I mean, I think one thing is, wouldn't it be great if more students had extra time, you know, if all students had? To finish a know? test or to right. finish an assignment. That, that would help not just autistic people. It's a lot like how curb cuts not only help people in wheelchairs, they also help parents with strollers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that could also be something that helps, the, you know, asking for more help or more time on a test can be good for everybody. That's Eric Garcia, journalist in Washington, D.C., author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. If autistic people want the focus to be on improving the quality of their lives with autism, what about all the scientific research that has focused for decades on finding a cure? My um, knowledge of this has made me also realize that a cure is not necessarily possible. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. As autistic people take the lead in autism advocacy, there are still very few of them doing scientific research on autism. And that has led to some major blind spots, says Monique Botha. Autistic researchers tend to focus on community priorities, which are the things that autistic people and their families want done in research. So they're more likely to focus on things like quality of life, mental health and stigma, as opposed to focusing on stuff like genetics or biology, which doesn't actually come up as a priority for a lot of people. Botha is a psychology researcher at the University of Stirling in the UK. She's autistic and studies autism. She says researchers who don't have autism usually focus on finding a cure, while autistic people don't tend to see their autism as something that needs curing. The difference in perspective is evident even in the choice of words Botha prefers. She says autistic person rather than person with autism. The problem with saying person with autism is that we tend to use it when we consider the thing that we are talking about as a disease. So, for example, we would say a person with cancer or a person with multiple sclerosis. And there is a value-based judgment in that. We tend to try to separate the person from the autism. 
right? Because generally society considers autism to be a problematic thing. Autistic people, um, by far and away, tend to prefer autistic because they don't tend to conceive as the, of their autism as being a bad thing. They consider it a difference like being left-handed, being tall, being short. It's not something that they consider inherently problematic, so they don't tend to want it separated from them. I also think it's important to make clear that although autistic people think about autism in terms of um, it being a difference rather than a negative thing, autistic people in general still consider themselves to be disabled. They don't think being a disabled person is inherently negative. So the focus then becomes on inclusion in settings, making sure that the right support is in place. And not only is the search for a cure unimportant, says Botha, it's also likely to be impossible. So every time we discover genetics that are related to autism, we discover between 100 and 1,000 individual genetics, um, genes, um, and we find them in new patterns every time. So whenever someone says, you know, there's this gene associated with autism, well, actually, there are hundreds. Um, and actually, it seems to be a different pattern each time. So even if people were invested in getting a cure, for example, it wouldn't scientifically necessarily be something that's possible. By contrast, Botha's doctoral research focused on trying to understand why lifetime rates of anxiety and depression are up to four times higher in autistic people. So before my research, there would be a lot of kind of blasé statements saying, you know, well, maybe anxiety or depression is inherent to autism. And what my research has consistently found is that exposure to stigma, exposure to victimization, exposure to discrimination consistently predicts worse mental health, um, both in the short term and over time. So basically, autistic people are experiencing high levels of victimization. They're being bullied at school. They're being um, victimized in society and in the workplace. And over time, this additional burden is going to have an impact and does have an impact on their mental health. So autism does not need to mean that you will end up being anxious or depressed. We should actually be fixing the relational problems between autistic people and society. If children weren't victimized in school, if society was more inclusive, then a lot of these problems wouldn't become problems by the time autistic people are adults. Botha says her field desperately needs autistic researchers to nudge it toward more focus on making life better for people with autism. But academic research as a career is unfortunately not very conducive to the needs of autistic people. One, conferences are hell. <laughs> They're truly dreadful because it's all fluorescent lighting, very loud, big echoey rooms. They're not conducive to anyone who's got sensory sensitivities. If you don't like bright lights or um, loud, loud, big crowds, um, then it can get really, really complicated. Um, but also schooling in general, when you're um, autistic, or in fact, if you have um, basically any needs that fall outside of kind of the norm, you're less likely to end up graduating from school, less likely to end up graduating from university. So actually breaking into academia for a lot of autistic people and other disabled people as well is really hard. Do you find people doubt your autism? Like, well, you're very, you know, well-spoken and you can present on stage, so you must have just a very mild case of autism. Yeah, so I get that all the time, but it, <laughs> it's so funny because people make the judgment based on where I am now, but they didn't see me as a child and they didn't see me as a teenager. And they see very specific aspects of my life. So, for example, yes, I have a PhD, um, but also I can't drive I genuinely 
can't drive. I have so much anxiety with unknowns that it's impossible. Um, I've tried a couple of times and I have panic attacks behind the wheel. So it's, it's just not really an option. Um, and I also struggle with tasks that involve executive functioning. So I can sit down and I wrote my thesis, but I struggle with other tasks of everyday living. So I struggle with um, organizing a schedule to have three regular meals a day. I struggle with schedules around things like um, showering, but it's rare that I put those things out in the public because if I did talk about how autism affects me as a person, people would start to doubt the credibility of my work. So you do always have to present this very particular idea of who you are as an academic. That just must be exhausting. That that must add to the mental health um, stresses. It completely does. When I interviewed autistic people, they actually called this a lose-lose situation. They were like, well, if I tell people I'm autistic, they're going to treat me differently. If I don't tell them, they're going to treat me um, differently anyway because I'm weird or come across as weird. But also, if I pretend to be non-autistic, it's exhausting. But if I stop pretending, I get treated poorly. On the other hand... My attention to detail is impeccable. (laughs) And actually, I think this is what autistic autism researchers are going to do. They're going to clean up the field Hmm. because where there are inconsistencies or where there is something that is ethically or morally ambiguous, autistic people who are breaking into the field, they're coming along and they're pointing out the inconsistencies because we have that attention to detail where we're like, actually, your argument doesn't follow there, or actually, you need to do better science. So ultimately, um, our attention to detail and probably the fact that we tend to be quite morally rigid and quite ethically focused, I think it's going to make for really great thorough science. That's research psychologist Monique Botha at the University of Stirling in the UK. And it's not just academia that's difficult for autistic people. The metaphorical street signs in most professional settings seem to be in a different language for those with autism. I think one of the most common was just not really catching when a coworker would have some kind of hidden agenda going on with their communication. This is Sarah Nannery, who was well into her career as a nonprofit executive before she was diagnosed with autism. It was hard for me to pick up social cues. I wasn't really good with the whole small talk and um, connecting with people implicitly. I really, I was just there to get the work done and I wanted to do the best I could. And, you know, as I started to move up in the workplace, it really became clear that I needed to be able to build more relationships with people um, outside of just the work itself. Sarah had always known she dealt with things a little differently. But as she started looking to rise through the ranks at work, she began to realize her differences might derail her career. Like, for example, her aversion to small talk at the office. On the one part, it was good because I got a reputation as like the person who would get things done. <laughs> um, but it also, you know, it, it made people stand off a little bit when instead of connecting um, because they just didn't really know how to connect with me. So um, that was where I would I would come back to my desk after like an interaction in the hallway and I would send off a quick text message to Larry, you know, like this just happened. What do I do? What what happened? What do I say? Um, And he would kind of help walk me through how to start to recognize that. Larry is her husband who does not have autism. Sarah would frequently text him to help interpret interactions at work. And he would explain things like why a coworker might be taking credit for Sarah's work. You know, they, they want to achieve the next level. They want to become a manager. And if they can take credit for your work, then they're going to take credit for your work. Texting Larry for guidance worked for a while. But a point came when Sarah realized it was not enough. And it just, like, everything just became too much without more support. And a thought surfaced from her college days. She'd occasionally wondered back then if maybe she had autism. But I never had really looked into getting diagnosed because I just didn't feel like I really needed to at that point. And uh, it was about a year of 
deciding whether I really wanted to go for the diagnosis because I didn't want it to change anything really. Like I didn't want to start using it as a crutch. I didn't want Larry to start treating me differently. There is this stigma around once you have a diagnosis, once you're classified as something, is that who you are? Is that your identity? And you, you don't want to take away from yourself, especially when you're growing and all of these life changes are happening. So it took us a few months just talking through that the label will not define you. It's the traits that you are coming to the table and just trying to understand yourself better. And the better we got at that, I think the easier it came to going and getting your diagnosis. And I'm really glad that I did, actually, because it's brought so much light to just who I am and how I experience the world and the kinds of supports that I need. With that diagnosis, Sarah's struggles suddenly made sense. And it helped her and Larry better understand how to work together to meet her career needs. Uh, a really great example is like, I'm, I have been very forgetful all my life. And it's not actually that I'm forgetful, which is kind of a negative trait to have. It's actually that I do have issues with executive functioning. And I'm, I feel like I'm literally holding my whole life in my hands like grains of sand and they're just falling everywhere. And I, there's no way that I could keep track of all of them, even if I wanted to. So it's not a willful, you know, laziness or forgetfulness. It's, it's that I need a bucket, you know? And so Larry helps me get the bucket that I need. And then, you know, everything works much better. Together, Sarah and Larry Nannery have written a memoir slash guidebook called What to Say Next. Successful Communication in Work, Life, and Love with Autism Spectrum Disorder. It's filled with what they call workflows that the two of them have developed to help Sarah navigate situations that might come up at the office. What happens if I meet somebody who's higher up than me in the pantry, you know, have a couple things in mind that I would talk to that person about? What happens if I meet a coworker outside of the office, right? I have these workflows. And so then what happens if I meet an executive higher up than me outside of the office? That's a whole different <laughs> workflow um, that I would have to go back to. There are times when there's just a new situation. There's something that Sarah has not encountered before or she doesn't think that she's encountered it before. There could just be a, a small nuanced difference because it was Becky asking the question and last week it was John and John phrased the question one way and Becky phrased it a different way. And that was enough of a difference that Sarah would have to restart and say, all right, how do I handle this engagement? So I spent a lot of our conversation talking about, well, these things are similar. What you've developed as a work process for this, you can apply for that. And though Becky phrased it slightly differently, it's still the same idea. Uh, we had a great example of this actually last night when a former CFO found us online and reached out to Sarah and it was almost 9 p.m. And I watched Sarah go through the process of like, do I answer the phone? Am I prepared for this conversation? My husband's here, all, all of these dynamics and her cobbling it together. But she was able to answer the phone, able to have a great conversation and then say, I'm going to have dinner now. So it's been great talking. We got to go. And all of that were you know, multiple workflows being brought together in real time and such a success that I'd say before the book, you wouldn't have been able to do. You would have just yeah. let it go to voicemail. Yeah, I would not have answered the phone a couple of years ago. And I almost didn't last night, but but I did. And I got through the whole conversation all by myself. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing, but also kind of exhausting to think about, Sarah, that every single yes. encounter you have to sort of run this diagnostic and then be like, all right, I use this method to deal with this. Because, and, and so if you, if you didn't have these workflows, as you guys call them, um, would you be just like shutting down or kind of like not engaging with people or, or saying the wrong things or, or what? Like what, what would be the consequence if you didn't have those workflows? Yeah, all those things. I Most likely I would just not engage. I wasn't willing to engage um, knowing that I had the risk of saying the wrong thing or misinterpreting what someone was saying. 
then there would be cases where I would engage and it would go the wrong way, or it, I would realize later that it, it, it different ways that I could have done it. And then if there's enough of that going on, that could lead to a lot of over analysis on my part. And I would start to shut down, you know, in, um, mm. in autism language, we call it a meltdown where for me, I would, I would just shut off. I wouldn't be able to really talk I would be completely stuck inside my own head for a while. But with your intelligence and with your diligence in getting your work done, you kept going. And that's maybe a double-edged sword because the higher you go up in the career ladder, right, and you're still only in your beginning of your 30s, you have a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. So there is that balance of you don't want to go so far in your career that you feel like you're living on a tightrope 10 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're on the tightrope for two or three, (laughs) but your capabilities and the successes you've had are validating enough that you've found a good comfort zone. Right. Because it's not that I didn't want to engage or grow. It's just that I, I didn't pick up how to on my own. I had to learn it manually and I have to do it manually. Do you feel like, Sarah, you can just opt at certain points to to not play the game the way mm. it's generally played and still feel like you can succeed? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question because it really, I think it really depends on the workplace. Um, there are workplaces that are especially now becoming more neurodiverse friendly um, and, you know, I guess the remote work environment helps a little bit because there's less opportunity for this kind of small talk interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, you know, I, I think that for me, um, what I would do is I would block off times on my calendar when I, that would be my work time and not, not something you can do in every workplace, but people would know, uh, or at least see on my calendar that I'm busy during those times. So they wouldn't come and bother me. And that would be my, alone kind of recharge focus time. Mm. And I would be very mindful about when I would venture out into the hallway or to the um, the common uh, pantry area. So if I really was not feeling like I wanted to engage, um, I wouldn't go to the lunch area during lunch rush time. I would wait and go at one or two so that I would encounter fewer people. I think that was more just me navigating the timing and kind of how my workplace flowed and less about the workplace itself being accommodating. What is something that workplaces can do to be more, uh, I guess, to feel like a safer place and to cultivate employees with autism disorder? Sarah was very lucky that very early on in your career, you were afforded an office. Uh, your career path would have been very different with an open floor plan with cubicles everywhere and a lot of crosstalk and noise. I don't know if with all of that saturation, you would have been able to succeed. Mm-hmm. So being mindful that everybody is unique and we can't say, well, 80% of people are most successful in this area because now 20% of the people are getting left out and they could be some of your stars, but they're so saturated with the noise, with the stimulation. Maybe ask every employee upon entry, welcome to the company. How would you feel that you'd be most successful? That might be a good first start. (laughs) And for everybody, right? Um, That's the thing, like the accommodations that you, that a workplace might make for neurodiverse uh, folks are are beneficial for everybody. So uh, it's not just about having this burden of needing to deal with people who might have different needs. Everybody benefits from having this more individualized approach. In their book, Sarah and Larry also share advice on navigating relationships with an autistic person. They've had to work at figuring out how to communicate without misunderstandings. For example, they like to take walks together. And Larry might mention that, oh, it's a little chilly out, you know, just making conversation. But Sarah is thinking, why is he telling me this? Does he need a coat? Does he need a hat? Do we need to go back? My default is to always assume that communication is happening for a specific reason, whereas Larry is just trying to build some of that implicit emotional connection I'm not getting that. And all I'm doing is listening to the actual words being said and trying to respond to that. So it'll happen all through the day. Like he'll, he'll say something and I'll be like, do you need help? What do you need? What do you need from me? And he's like, stop trying to help me. I'm just, 
I'm just talking. We're just talking. I'm looking for the the information, not knowing that there's another reason why people would communicate this way, which is that it it sends um, chemical signals in your brain that are like feel-good chemicals. Oh, I'm having a nice talk with uh, a person that I like and we're exchanging, you know, information that's really just superficial. It's not about the information that's being exchanged. It's just about the fact that we're here existing together and talking. Mm. And my brain doesn't give me those signals at first, at least. I'll get them a little bit later, but it's like a delayed reaction. On the, the flip side of that, very early on, we held hands. And that physical connection is something that does speak to Sarah and get her emotions in a positive manner. So even today, or you know, these days that we have that odd verbal exchange, we just give each other a quick hug. It's a nice little reset. We kind of laugh off the verbal, whatever it was that we were talking about, and we are able to move on. So there, there was learning on my side on how to be a better partner and let Sarah not have to be on as often. I mean, I love Larry and I want to spend time with him and knowing now what I know about the reason that that this type of communication exists, of course I want to engage. I don't always have the brain space to be able to do it. Um, And so I miss out on the opportunity sometimes. Maybe I'll just stay silent or I'll bring up something like the episode of Doctor Who from the previous night, because that's something I can really start to talk about. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do try, and it's just a manual process. I have to I have to stop my brain from doing the literal, oh, what does he need, and retrack it into something like, I'll have a, a, a list of things in my head. Oh, the sky is a pretty color of blue, or what you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and I'm sure Larry can tell that I'm like, reaching, but I I think he appreciates it. That's Sarah Nannery with her husband, Larry. Their book is called What to Say Next, Successful Communication in Work, Life, and Love with Autism Spectrum Disorder. We also heard from psychologist Monique Botha. You can find out more about her autism research at moniquebotha.com. Journalist Eric Garcia's book is We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. And Emily Grodin's memoir is called I Have Been Buried Under Years of Dust, a memoir of autism and hope. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Ciara Hewlett and Keeley Gibson with help from me and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschusel, Jacob Molaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. We would love to have you subscribe and leave a comment or review wherever you listen to this podcast. That'll help other people find us. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.